and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin, and this is my co-host, Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about Oppenheimer. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. We have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town. This is a historical, political, biographical, dramatic thriller with heist vibes. Directed by Christopher Nolan. The cast includes Virgil Malloy. Commissioner Gordon, Robert Fisher, Rita Vertasky, James Barris, Young Han Solo, Jerry Winning Time West, Hercule Poirot, Bernard the Elf, David Ross, A Naked Brother, Soraya Knight, Goodwill Hunting, The Amazing Green Goblin, Huey Campbell, Josh Nichols, and one of the directors of Uncut Gems. I watched this movie in an AMC theater, which is like... Does it make movies better? Well, no. It's actually... I think it's the inferior of the two movie theaters that are like really close to my house, but they had better showtimes. They were showing this at 4.30, and the earliest I could see it after work was 7 o'clock at the... um, yeah, at the Regal. So I, I wanted to go to bed at some point <laughs> on the same day that I started the movie. So that's why I went to AMC. Joey, where did you see this movie? I saw this movie twice. I saw it in an EVO theater in Dallas, which is like a big old entertainment complex that has like, you know, an arcade and stuff like that. And I saw it at a Regal theater. Um, so it sounds like neither of us saw it in IMAX. That is correct. Do not. And um, I'm impressed that you sunk six hours into. Well, more than that, because I also wrote this, <laughs> wrote pages and pages of notes oh, on yeah. this movie. I mean, we always think more <laughs> and, than just. And I listened but... to two hours, a two-hour video about the atomic bombs <laughs> being dropped. Well, it sounds like you're well prepared. But before we get into our analysis of this film, we're going to recap the events in the synopsis that you wrote. Go ahead, Joy. J. Robert Oppenheimer isn't on trial. He is simply appealing the decision to revoke his security clearance in front of a board. An appeal process that is taking a month requires a lawyer, interviews with practically everyone he knows, and a review of every major decision he has made in his career. Louis Strauss is also not on trial. He is simply answering questions from a Senate committee before they approve his appointment to Secretary of Commerce. But as the committee digs, they find more and more troubling information about Strauss's conduct regarding Oppenheimer, which leads to his surefire appointment being in jeopardy. The story in Oppenheimer follows these two men as they seek to justify their actions to a judgmental public. But were they right to do what they did? That's for you to decide. Oppenheimer's story begins while he was studying at Cambridge in 1926. He isn't a very good experimentalist or even that good at algebra, but he understands the burgeoning field of quantum mechanics better than almost anyone. His papers make him world-renowned and a prize for any university. But he decides to head home to Berkeley and Caltech to start the first quantum mechanics department in the U.S. There he meets Ernest Lawrence, who heads the experimental lab. 
Lawrence and Oppenheimer bicker frequently about Oppenheimer's interest in left-wing politics. It's unclear how Oppenheimer really feels about the political movement, but he has read Marx, begins a casual relationship with a communist named Gene Tatlock, supports his lab's interest in unionizing, his brother Frank becomes a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, and his future wife Kitty is an ex-communist. This is a problem because the U.S. is trying to defeat fascism without giving an inch to communism. But they need Oppenheimer's help. You see, the Nazis have made a breakthrough in quantum mechanics, and they are very close to building an atomic bomb. At the urging of Lawrence, Oppenheimer renounces his left-wing tendencies, gives his baby to a friend, and begins working for the U.S. government on the Manhattan Project. Heading the project is General Leslie Groves. In order to test the largest bomb ever created, Oppenheimer builds the town of Los Alamos in the middle of the New Mexico desert. Los Alamos is populated by scientists and their families in order to keep them isolated but happy. Progress on the bomb goes well. Soon, the members of the Manhattan Project get word that the Germans are falling behind in their development of a similar weapon. They run into one small snag, however. There exists a small chance that starting a nuclear reaction will ignite the atmosphere and destroy all life on Earth. Worried about the possibility, Oppenheimer seeks out the grandfather of quantum mechanics, Albert Einstein. Einstein warns his successor about changing the world. Despite their progress, Oppenheimer's personal life is becoming complicated. Jean Tatlock kills herself after meeting with him one final time, and one of Oppenheimer's students is being drafted in order to keep him from organizing the research lab. Oppenheimer attempts to give up someone he believes is a spy, but in the process endangers one of his friends. It's all a mess. While the U.S. builds the bomb, Germany surrenders, but Japan fights on. The scientists on the project begin to worry about the morals of building a weapon for a war that does not need it, but Oppenheimer pushes on. Three years, $2 billion, and more than 100 babies later, the town of Los Alamos finishes building the world's first atomic bomb. They drop it in the middle of the desert in time for President Truman to attend a meeting between himself and the other allied leaders. Days later, everyone at Los Alamos gets the news that Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been destroyed by their project. Oppenheimer gives a rousing speech, but he starts to doubt himself and his convictions. The people of Los Alamos are both excited and terrified about what this means for their world. Old Oppie meets with President Truman to express his regret, but Truman isn't impressed. So instead, Oppenheimer begins a media tour advocating for restraint. While at Los Alamos, another scientist named Edward Teller believes he can build a hydrogen bomb, which will be even more powerful than the bombs they dropped in Japan. Oppenheimer vehemently believes building an H-bomb would be a mistake and opposes its construction at every turn. Here is where Louis Strauss enters the picture. Strauss is an officer of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission and is offended by Oppenheimer's open opposition to the objective of other atomic weapons. Strauss engineers the revocation of Oppenheimer's security clearance, which is meant to discredit him publicly. However, this backfires when Strauss's fingerprints are revealed on the case and is enough to deny him the cabinet position. At the end of the movie, we see Oppenheimer talking to Einstein about the chain reaction hypothesis. And Oppenheimer admits that although he did not ignite the atmosphere, he might have still destroyed the world. The end. 
There we have it. The events of Oppenheimer expertly uh, synopsized uh, by Joey here. I think that I... Wow, that's tough to do i think that thank you for saying that because i am embarrassed by how long it is (laughs) well let's get right into our discussion about it we'll start with our pros and cons joey what did you like about oppenheimer this is a wide-ranging and complex story about one of the most important people of his time it's if there's a few truly inspired and transformative performances I think the bomb going off is a truly amazing movie moment, something that's going to stick with me for a long time. And the politics in this movie feel extremely timely and sufficiently muddled and difficult to parse, um, which is sort of how I describe this whole movie. What about you? I think this movie has an incredibly deep cast. It's just at every turn i'm like whoa this movie has this person in it yeah because and again i don't look these things up before i go to see a movie that i know i'm gonna see if i don't need convincing then i don't watch the trailers or look up anything about the movie i want to be going in completely fresh and that paid off with oppenheimer this movie features great use of practical effects uh like you said the bomb going off was fantastic but everything was looked amazing and and was really great to see in the theater this movie is about a consequential subject matter, you know, important people and, uh, you know, important subjects for existence of humanity. So uh, I, I definitely, it, it gave me a lot to think about my way out of the theater. I enjoyed the nonlinear storyline. I thought it made uh, biography much more interesting uh, and kept my attention a lot better uh, across this very long film. And we got some fantastic performances from some of the biggest name actors on uh, a roster full of big names. So those are the things that we liked. Let's move on to what we didn't like. Joey, what are your cons for Oppenheimer? I'm confused why half this movie is in black and white. Um, why film a movie in IMAX and then show it in black and white? That feels like <laughs> a, a weird thing to do. Um, I feel like Louis Strauss is a one-dimensional villain, and I feel like the women in this movie really get nothing. Um, they're reduced to lovesick emotional possessions. I think that at times the dialogue is disjointed and confusing, which is sort of typical for a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, especially after watching Inception, it's really clear that like he he will start a sentence and then the actors will act to imply the end of that sentence instead of actually saying what they are thinking, <laughs> which is which can be confusing. Um, and I honestly, it's really hard for me to know what to think about this movie. You know, I've read reviews. I've, I've, you know, done sort of a lot of research about atomic weapons and about Oppenheimer, but it's not uh, clear to me what I'm supposed to be taking away from this. You know, I, I'm feeling, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's giving confused. It's giving muddled, and I'm, I'm not like uh, sure what to, what to believe. And maybe by the end of this conversation, I will have a better idea. But for now, I'm like, um, what? I, I just don't really know if I. <laughs> I just don't really know if I get the uh, the overall point. Not this movie giving confused. It's <laughs> the confusion for me. It's uh, the confusion for me. It sure is. Um, well, just to comment on some of those things, the black and white, uh, immediately I was like, oh, black and white is the furthest thing along in the timeline. This is clearly a Better Call Saul reference, mm. uh, which made me think, I wonder if the Better Call Saul is referencing something else, and then they're both referencing that thing. Nice I don't know. Um, it did help me to distinguish between timelines, but I agree. It's like, what what are you really getting at with it being black and white? There's is like a different way. To, there's another way to do that, white? right? There's another way to do the same thing, you know? And Nolan has is famous for his nonlinear storylines, right? Like 
Yeah. He's he's never made it so clear about what he's trying to do. So it feels weird to make this decision. I was sure there was going to be a transition between color to black and white. I was thinking that's what I was expecting. I was yeah. thinking that Oppenheimer was going to drop the bomb and then the rest of the movie was going to be black and white. Um, and like oh, that, and that wow. would be like, you know, like the world has changed type of thing and it's gotten right. worse. So, you know, that kind of thing. But that's not what happened. So whatever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> going back to the cons. This movie is super long and it felt long. Yes. This was an exhausting experience. You're dealing with these weighty subjects, a depressing reality that we live in the nuclear era, and you're sitting on your butt for three hours plus, you know, 25 minutes of commercials before. So um, I was exhausted after this movie. And I do think that that is going to be something that I consider when I think about rewatching this film because I'm like, it is a task to get through. So it was super long. I, feel like it could have been shorter um some of the actors i do i'm impressed by the uh, cast in this film some of the actors are too big for their roles to the point where it is a distraction uh rami malik i love him but him showing up is like <laughs> what is he doing here yeah, and he's like, like barely like, in it like, you're not gonna give him any lines and then yeah so it was like <laughs> by, by the time, at the end when he like delivers that like definitive blow to strauss it's like oh this is why he's in the movie it's exactly like- <laughs> and that's that's distracting and Josh Peck being just the guy who's like, oh, I might cancel it, even though we know he's not going to cancel it. It was very distracting. He was never anybody but Josh Peck, especially yeah. because Josh Peck as a celebrity is kind of like, I don't know, a distraction. Like, I, I don't think he's much of like, I don't like him as a celebrity. So when I see him in the movie, I'm like, oh, here he is annoying me again. <laughs> So I, I just I didn't love that. Sometimes you can have too many big names in your film if the roles aren't big enough to obscure the fact that they are the person they are in real life. Right. And then I echo your sentiment. I feel like this is true for like basically every Christopher Nolan film is you're hopeless uh, in your attempt to understand every single spoken word if you don't have subtitles uh, that I definitely just gave up quickly in the film. I was like, well, <laughs> I, I hopefully won't need to hear everything they say. And uh, I don't love that. It 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 because every time I rewatch a Christopher Nolan film that I saw in the theater at home, I have subtitles, and then the movie is that much more insightful to me. It's yes. that much more clear what's going on, and I I don't like that because his movies are so meant to be seen in a theater. So uh, I don't know how you solve that problem. They Maybe give just there's, there's like those devices that you can get that will um, give you the subtitles that you can like put in your uh, cup holder. Oh really? Like, I don't. I don't know what they're called. I think they're called ADR devices or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, when I worked at the movie theater, this occasionally people would ask for them. I didn't really quite understand how they worked, but for whatever reason, there's like a signal that's given out when a movie is being played, and it like that interprets it, and then you can put it so that you can arrange it so like only you can see it. It's like right in front of your viewing, but nobody else's basically. So maybe that, I'll maybe next time free? I go to the see a Christopher Nolan movie, I'll I'll ask for one of those. Does that cost money? Uh, when I worked the theater, I worked at. I don't think it did. You, like, I will you, definitely have to give that. You a like try. rented it, you know, like or like you just asked for it. Okay, well let's uh, let's go ahead and get into our overall section and really start discussing Oppenheimer. Take it away, Joey. I wanted to. This is what I expected. I expected to walk out of the theater saying, "Wow." You know, you know, my mouth is agape, soy facing, and I have uh, both of my, I have three fingers up in both hands, you know, around my face, you know, giving the wow. Um, yes. But instead, I left scratching my chin, you know, doing the, um, hmm. The, th- the thinking emoji? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> the thinking emoji, exactly. Um, technically, 
This movie is very engaging, thoughtful, and atypical for a blockbuster. The story is so well known that there isn't any real twists to the narrative, just uh, little lesser one, like known details. But Killian Murphy, by the way, I've been saying Killian Murphy's name wrong my Me entire too. life. Me too. <laughs> I think I may have even corrected you and said, no, it's Killian <laughs> Murphy. But I looked it up. It is Killian Murphy. So. Sorry about that. There's no anyway. chance that you corrected me because I was saying it wrong, <laughs> too. I, I was, it was silly and Murphy until I saw Oppenheimer, which anyway. is definitely cringe-inducing. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> Killian Murphy, uh, Robert Downey Jr., and Matt Damon really lose themselves in each of their performances, especially Murphy, who is now inextricably linked to Oppenheimer himself, having played him in what is the definitive biopic about his life. I was so impressed with all three of these men um, each well-regarded and A-listers on their own. They perform each part with grace and a complex poise that really let, tells you everything you need to know about them and what they're thinking. It's monumental. It's the best part of the movie, and I think it's overshadowed by the more bombastic, unintended parts of the film. Um, the nonlinear storytelling is also very interesting and satisfying. Like you said, it keeps you engaged the whole time. Nolan is a master of it, and I think it's really w used well here. Although it took me about three quarters of the way through to understand the difference between the color portion and the black and white portion, what was happening and when, when and when was communicated subtly but clearly, and it kept me paying attention and invested. I'm thinking about that scene where um, Strauss and Oppenheimer uh, meet, and they and Strauss is giving him a tour of the facility that he wants him to work at, right? It's clear based on like the in the first like five seconds when they meet each other that this is happening after Oppenheimer dropped the bombs, right? And that this is some, you know, later period after he's married and all that stuff. So it puts all of the rest of the story in context without you even having watched the rest of the movie. And you know this is happening later in the in his life. It's it's done so subtly that you don't even notice it. And the whole movie is full of like those kind of details where you can tell when it is based on the clues that they give you. And the makeup is so good in this movie that you can even tell just by how Murphy looks about when it is happening in his life. So, I, yeah, I was really impressed with that. Yeah, I agree that the makeup that changed everybody's ages was done fantastically. Um, and like, just to to kind of go off of that, for for a movie about a historical figure that I don't know much about, a political climate that I wasn't alive for, and theoretical physics, which I don't have any hope of understanding, no matter how long you make your movie. <laughs> <laughs> I found this film to be surprisingly easy to follow. It jumps around a lot at the beginning, which took me a little while to get used to. And at certain moments had me feeling pretty lost trying to figure out which timeline I'm in. But by the end, I felt like I didn't have to work overtime to understand what I had been watching. It's a little tough to follow scene to scene, but overall, it's actually quite clear. Nolan uses the nonlinear narrative effectively to tell this story in a way that's much more interesting because it defies our expectations. We all already know that he succeeds in creating the atomic bomb. Yes. Uh, and, and so by using a nonlinear storyline... It allows us to see his life from a different perspective, which I think is super powerful and something that it can be done, done really well through the medium of film. Absolutely. Um, and I think the visual effects are just a marvel. The bomb going off was really amazing. And although there really isn't any tension about whether it will detonate or not, the anticipation of what it will look like and sound like and feel like was just amazing. I, I love the lead up when they show the other explosions and the delay in sound slightly to emphasize how far away they are and to foreshadow the long period between seeing the explosion and then feeling it. 
it mirrors the political fallout of dropping the bombs. At first, it seems incredible and exciting. And then when the shockwave finally reaches you, it's terrifying and chilling. It isn't until the wave of sound hits that our characters begin to be afraid of their creation. Yeah, I, that was an incredible experience. Sil- the silence I know. when the bomb went off with just like the... <sighs> is, is just... The, there's a lot of tension there. And then the ear-splitting explosion. That, like you said earlier, it's something that will like stick with me for a long time, like the memory of experiencing that. And I think you can only fully appreciate that when you're in a really great sound system environment. Maybe yeah. you've got the home theater to rival a, a action movie theater, but uh, you know, my, uh, you know, my humble opinion, the movie theater is where this is meant to be experienced. Uh, and it was so impressive to find out that this was all practical effects. They used all like gasoline and all these other like it was just an explosion i was looking it up i was like how do they do this and it's like you know (laughs) the same way we've blown stuff up for years (laughs) 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 turns out we figured that one out a long time ago (laughs) yeah and they use like uh like miniatures or or like large miniatures which is kind of an oxymoron to to be able to make everything be practical effects um they even built that 1940s style town from scratch so they didn't use any cgi to like like create a town or something like that right and even the visualizations of the atoms and the molecules and energy waves were also practical effects apparently this movie uses no computer generated effects which is it's like uh christopher nolan a man after my own heart i know um also christopher nolan a man who maybe rewatched inception like lately and was like let's just stick with all practice (laughs) (laughs) yes no i i completely agree and i uh, there's some quote out there from him about this movie about how he doesn't think cgi is gripping he doesn't think that it pulls people into the theater and i agree i think that watching something that is done in camera this way there's something different about it and it's um there's just there's just a quality to it that's i feel like uh it's still not achievable with a pure cgi um you know and it's becoming increasingly more clear that you know these computer generated effects and then you know to go along with you know computer generated art and you know scripts and everything like that is really the cheap way out it's the uh it's it's it can achieve a certain effect um, but it doesn't look as good as things that are done with like a, a real purpose with a real sense of craft behind them. And this one is um, this movie is a re- example of that in a really you know remarkable way for sure. And yeah, although this is I think I don't remember who it was, but one of the special effects guys was like, this was an easy one, you know, compared to the last two we did yeah, yeah. Pr- compared to Tenet. This one was uh, not not a problem. Like we we were um, we only had a couple of things to do. You know, we brushed our hands with this uh, early on so yeah yeah and it doesn't have to be the most taxing special effects for them to be impressive right i mean the bomb is probably the easiest one to go to but like we said the makeup was really great the little effects like the the face peeling off when the bomb went off even just having like that really bright white light all that stuff came across really well and you, you can do all that you know in camera so i again love practical effects and that's one of my favorite things about this film um, I think my biggest problem with this movie is the script. It is this it's melodramatic, it's strangely paced, and it leaves characters feeling incomplete and misrepresented. I can't even tell if this movie is trying to say something deeper or if it's just trying to tell the story of Robert Oppenheimer 
in a stylistic way. First of all, uh, the women in this story are all in love with Oppenheimer or else they don't matter. <laughs> there is exactly one woman scientist who does the job of a scientist and she is barely in the movie. She just shows up and is like, uh, I didn't learn how to type. And he's like, great, <laughs> you're perfect. <laughs> um, but Kitty, played by Emily Blunt, who is uh, Oppenheimer's wife, is a complex and hard to decipher character, which puts her on equal terms with her husband. Um, she seems to be constantly brimming with rage, always quick to lash out and bitter about her previous relationships. It's not clear at all that what Oppenheimer sees in her, and she's also a terrible mother. Um, her testimony at Oppie's hearing was a moment of redemption, but I found it hollow. It felt like the movie treated Emily Blunt terribly, and this was their way of making up for it. But it, it seemed to come out of nowhere, and although the characters in the hearing were impressed, I wasn't convinced that her argument was any more solid than anyone else's. Why did it matter so much? Why, she is his wife, so of course she's going to defend him, right? They, they come in and are like, you used to be a communist. And she's like, I was a communist 16, no, 17, no, 18 years ago. And, and everyone's like, Ooh, wow, you Ooh. know, she's got it. She, you know, she's got the, she's got the <laughs> X factor. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, I don't know what to take from this. You know, she's obviously very upset that Oppenheimer's going through this in a way that, um, is justified because I don't, and she's also frustrated with him for just kind of sitting there and taking it. But I didn't really feel like this was a, uh, you know, a turning point for her. I didn't really feel like, oh, wow, like, you know, she's so much smarter than she appeared. I never was really in doubt of that as much as I was like her own convictions or like why she was even in this situation. She's like, I, you know, I was a biologist and then I became a housewife, upgraded to a housewife. And she seems bitter about it. Then she goes and has, you know, two kids with Oppenheimer and doesn't take care of them and they're always freaking screaming. You know, like, what is, like, what does she want exactly? Is this not what she wanted? Why is she in this situation? You know, it, this is her fourth marriage. Like, you know, if she was so unhappy, then why didn't she leave? I, I just didn't really understand, like, um what like you know what why she was in this position exactly what she saw in Oppenheimer what Oppenheimer saw in her and in like why they were a good match at all right besides this one part where she defends him very successfully it doesn't really seem like they are like well suited for each other I do feel like that they were trying to make some sort of argument that they were well suited for each other because right before that you got Oppenheimer outside right. the room and they're like, oh well, is you know is she going to be ready? He's like, we've been through hell together. You know, she's gonna like. I, I think they were trying to make the case. It's like this is why she stuck. Like Oppenheimer, so impressive, and all these other women like uh, were you know he kind of went through them or used them up or whatever. But this is why Kitty stuck around because she's the female Oppenheimer and mm. she can she can hold her own or whatever. But I also feel like before that scene it kind of they didn't really make that argument so it kind of just came out of nowhere it's like oh well now she's like to be respected and is my equal but we'll give you no other kind of build up yeah just kind of when she's having the conversation with him and the lawyers right they're all like ah kitty you know like (laughs) she's like you guys are so dumb like why aren't you like why aren't you so being so why are you being so gentlemanly and stuff and they're like uh, women, they, they never understand the the law. You know what I mean? It's like she, she's never taken seriously until this moment. So I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think Emily Blunt did a fantastic job with the script that she was given, but I felt like the character of Kitty was too angry and too sad to feel real to me. And I feel similarly about Florence Pugh's character, Gene uh, Tatlock, the long term paramour. Uh, here at Affable Chat, we are huge fans of Florence Pugh, obviously. Big time. You should go check Big out time. our four-episode series we did about her. Um, but 
she's not well used in this movie. Her character was so obsessed with Oppenheimer while never committing to him. And that reduced her to this strange little side project on instead of being a fully formed person. I wanted her to be more than a dangerous temptation, but that's not what was called for. She's, I mean, she's obviously a very talented actress and I wanted more for her character. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I, one of the things that I heard before this movie was that there was Florence Pugh nudity in it. So let's talk yeah. about her nude scenes. To me, they were a little bit gratuitous. With what I know about film history, this just seems like classic Hollywood director behavior where they're on a power trip because they're in charge of a big, expensive movie and they decide it's absolutely necessary for the smoking hot actress to get (laughs) naked. I will caveat and say that I know Florence Pugh is on that free the nipple hype train, so it's possible that she was fully on board with the idea. But without some sort of proof one way or the other, I'll have to settle for like a middle ground opinion of saying it's an artistic choice. Rated R films sometimes have nudity where it's seeing the intimate moments in a real life person's life being told in a story. And sometimes that justifies sexualizing someone, I guess. So while it is a little scandalous, I'll stop short of calling Florence Pugh's boobs a distraction. (laughs) Josh Peck playing a minor role on the other I hand. I see, okay. This, this I mean, talk about a boob, okay? <laughs> um, I, I think that what, what this struck me as was like, this is an artistic movie, you know? This, there's the other side of this where there's like the, there's the gratuitous nudity because we can do it, right? Because we're in a big blockbuster. And then there's like, we're telling, you know, a very intimate story and we require all from our actors and so therefore you need to be willing to you know go the extra mile um you might say uh but um yeah i, I don't know i i felt like it was uh uh i, I mean i liked it um i thought that <laughs> it was a uh interesting and different you know kind of role for her where she's always been more um of a complicated character right and so that was my biggest problem with this was that she was kind of reduced to like the hot girl with boobs uh, way more than you know any anything more interesting um but i didn't feel like that needed to be like mutually exclusive i felt like she could have had a like a bigger um you know portion of the movie uh, play a bigger like you know uh role intellectually instead of just being this representation of something that uh oppenheimer couldn't have right and it was this i don't know i i i wasn't upset that she was topless for sure like that was that was a that was a pro for me but it was um uh, but i didn't feel like it served a greater narrative purpose um it only you know sort of enhanced the visuals you might say right and yeah and kind of echoing your comment about her performance like this is not the most impressive performance from Florence Pugh. It's not far from it. But I don't put that on her. I feel like she didn't have that much to work with because her character is basically just a sexy, mentally ill communist girl who kills herself. So <laughs> not really the depth we've seen from her other roles, which to me is just disappointing seeing how this movie will be uh, is being so critically acclaimed and widely viewed. So uh, an opportunity for her to kind of cement her status as this great actor and and i just feel like it's not really a great example remember her in little women right she's not the main character in that story you know she's a supporting actress she's not even she's like one of the other sisters she's not even like one of the more important sisters and she's like i feel like her character is very interesting in that story it she develops very in a very, very interesting way and um 
even though you know it's it's all about like these relationships and stuff it's it feels so much more solid and it feels way more real um than than what we get here so and this is like a classic christopher nolan problem he he for whatever reason has trouble with women characters it's either too much or too little right it's either like oh like there's some sort of you know femme fatale um you know evil um you know passion filled person or they're like this um you know uh sexy prize to be to be won um so uh, i don't know why this continues to be a problem <laughs> you know like this is the most consistent uh, criticism levied at nolan um but uh here we are uh in 2023 still doing it yep still doing it well let's let's move on and talk a little bit about the man himself uh oppenheimer i i think oppenheimer can join the likes of patrick bateman the joker walter white and Jack Gladney from White Noise oh, in the so category. Glad you put Jack Gladney in there as well. <laughs> I, yeah, my favorite scene in the movie is when Oppenheimer uh, says, uh, "Now you know. Now I become death. We live in a society." <laughs> yes. No. I. <laughs> Um, we can talk about his dialogue a little bit later, but the, the I think all these guys already in this category, and Oppenheimer's going to join them in the category of problematic male protagonists that young men will point to and say, whoa, he's literally just like me. As an impressionable young man myself, I'll give you my reaction to Oppenheimer as he is portrayed in this film. First of all, he's a genius, and he's way smarter than everyone around him, even other brilliant scientists. Very relatable to me, as I assume that everyone around me is a moron in any situation. <laughs> the only scientist that Oppenheimer respects is literally Albert Einstein. Also, he's low-key homicidal. I saw him poison that apple, and I thought, okay, he's edgy. I'm starting to like this guy. Also, he's irresistible to women. He's been with many beautiful women, and he's totally justified in cheating on them. It's very reasonable for a woman to kill herself if she can't be with him. Yeah. And none of this should preclude him from ending up with a beautiful, loyal wife that bears his children. She even defends him when the government comes after him, which, of course, would happen to me, too, because taxation is definitely theft. Got him. And all of this is secondary to the fact that he creates a weapon that results in the death of hundreds of thousands of people and potentially could lead to the end of human civilization in conclusion oppenheimer is literally me that is hilarious <laughs> <laughs> wow i i i saw this movie and there was a young man he had to be like somewhere between 18 and 23 who was in the bathroom after like when we walked out and he was wearing a suit and the, the like hat? the hat Awesome. Yeah, I was like, oh my, he's literally Oppenheimer. Oh, wait, he's back. <laughs> he's still here. That's funny. Um, uh. No, it's such, I actually like this a lot because of like the, the framing of it is so perfect. It's, it's like a, it is a classic like Sigma male type, uh, you know, uh, and, and the things, all these things that you've described here are the things that he's like not criticized for. You know what I mean? Like it's, it seems like, yeah, his biggest crime is, Maybe being a communist and then dropping a atomic bomb, you know, like it's the all the other stuff about how he like uh, you know tries to poison people and can't seem to uh, hold down a relationship is all sort of like yeah, you know, we're cool with that. Like this is what the, this is the price you pay for genius. 
Yes. And it's like, especially the Apple thing to me was like, uh, it, the movie kind of, I think was trying to get you to the point where it's like, he says wormhole and throws it away. It's like, Ooh, clever. He's very, he's sharp. Mm. You know, this guy knows how to potentially get away with, uh, you know, killing somebody. Sure. And I, I was just like, dang, that's way beyond the pale. This man is deranged. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. But yeah, I, I also just love making fun of that stereotype. And for me, Oppenheimer is very firmly in that category now. But more seriously, um, Oppenheimer is a morally gray character. He, he, like refers to his kind of decision making as being pragmatic but in my estimation this film portrays him as a man that doesn't seem to believe in anything he is sympathetic to communism until it stopped him from being able to work on the manhattan project he is very pro bomb until he actually made the bomb he's very self-contradictory yes and i have a lot to say about this actually um the narrative device that they're using here where he's supposed to defend his entire life right and he's going to um you know he has to basically recount his entire career and then defend it is this very interesting way of presenting the information because i think it's missing this element of context and reflection by by framing it as an attack on oppenheimer he's forced to defend himself and so he cannot afford to concede that he was ever wrong in any meaningful way even if he may have felt that that was true. Think about how these scenes would have been different if he was talking to someone writing a biography about him, right? Maybe he was writing a memoir and reflecting on his life and his decisions throughout his career. I think he would have seen a more honest Oppenheimer. And even if he was confronted with opinions or facts that contradicted his version of events, his response to that would have been extremely telling to the audience, right? If they're like, well, you know, some people say that, uh, you know, building the bomb was a mistake. And then he gets like, you know, imagine him, you know, getting angry at the person proposing this when it's clear that he's angry with the idea of even like of someone questioning him or the idea that he might be wrong, right? And and like that sort of thing haunts him, and that would be clear through that interaction. But instead, everything that comes at him is some sort of attack, and so he reacts in this way of like trying to deflect or to you know resolve these problems. And he does concede some things, but it's in a greater, it's in this greater purpose to make him seem pragmatic and reasonable as a person. But it doesn't seem like he's being totally honest. Um, instead, you have this uh, board, you know, that's eventually revealed to be corrupt. So why should I really take them seriously? Are their questions fair? And you know, what's so what's so bad about being a communist anyway? Um, maybe Nolan is attempting to confront Oppenheimer as he exists in history. Maybe Nolan believes that Oppenheimer has been unfairly villainized and the board is meant to be a reflection of history's cruel gaze on this man. Um, and you know, maybe this is actually a redemption story. But at the same time, uh, this movie does not present Oppenheimer as a moral person. Instead, he is a conflicted and contradictory person. We never really know what Afi believes. He frequently does what he feels is best and then comes to regret it. He finds himself in over his head over and over and over. And let's list some ways. While at Cambridge, he attempts to poison his professor, which he then regrets and stops. This is a bizarre scene to me. I, I think this is, I felt, I got this like very similar feeling while watching um, other uh, Christopher Nolan movies. I can't remember the specific one. It may have even been Inception. No, I don't think so, because Inception starts with such a, like, a beautiful way. But there's other ones, uh, maybe it's Tenet, where 
it just starts at this breakneck speed. You're like, we're going, we're doing it. You know, we're we're yeah. already here. And then like he quickly poisons the apple, and then like you know, not even five minutes later, he's like knocking it out of Neil's Boris, Neil Boris, um hands right and it's like what am i supposed to take from this exactly and at first i was like willing to just kind of dismiss it even though i was actually familiar with this story this is something that um uh, malcolm gladwell actually mentions in um uh, outliers as an example of oppenheimer's emotional intelligence which is bizarre but anyway um (laughs) the uh, i i had heard the story before i knew it was true and i so when he um does it i'm like oh there it is and then when it doesn't really come back until later or like it never really seems to connect to the rest of the story in, a, in like a a like specific way i wasn't sure what to take from it and sort of dismissed it then when after i finished watching the movie and realized that the entire thing was sort of structured strangely as if it was you know not in this a way that i expected a blockbuster to be structured i started re like visiting these scenes and realizing that maybe there was some sort of meaning there that i wasn't getting before Anyway, this is a great example of him regretting something almost immediately after attempting to do it. And it is something that is extremely dangerous, right? He attempts to like literally kill this guy. And then he's like, ah, actually, maybe I should not do that because it reminds me of horses. Um, He maintains an ill-advised and frankly dangerous relationship with Gene Tatlock, who ends up killing herself, right? Again, this is an example of him never really making a decision. Uh, Gene is like, hey, um, I need you to come here. And he shows up right? Regardless of the danger that he puts himself and her in, right? He has a child with a wife that neither of them are prepared to care for. Um, You know, he, after Kitty gets pregnant and then she has her child, um, he ends up giving that child to Chevalier, right? Uh, To one of his friends because he he doesn't feel like he or Kitty are like going to be good parents, basically. Um, he keeps, he doesn't really have a like the revelation there is not should we try to be better parents it's like okay we should stop being parents yes it is <laughs> yes exactly and then you know he says he says to Chevalier he says um, uh, we are terrible people or something like that we are selfish terrible people or something and um, and then his friend says to him uh, well you know selfish terrible people never think that they're selfish and terrible and. I don't agree with this and because um, uh, he is he is those things. He is very obviously those things. And his own self-reflection doesn't absolve him from being those things, right? Oh, you know, um, you having regret about something doesn't, even if you never got like in trouble for it, right? Doesn't mean that you are absolved from doing that thing. You know what I yeah. mean? Right. There's two ways you can, there's two main ways you can come to regret something. One way is that you get caught doing something you shouldn't have. And then you're like, dang, you know, I wish I hadn't got caught is really what you think. (laughs) But the other thing is you do something that you shouldn't have done and then you regret it because it eats at your soul, right? And that's what's happening to Oppenheimer throughout this movie is he does things and then he doesn't really feel a consequence to them. Not really, but he comes to regret them. He comes to real like, see them as something that he shouldn't have done and that doesn't absolve him of the sin as kitty says when he uh after he reveals that he's been cheating on gene and then gene kills herself he said just because you you can't commit the sin and then expect everyone to feel sorry for you um after you've done it which is also true like we should not absolve him of these problems simply because he's aware of the problems that he's creating anyway i have more of examples of this well you want to talk about quantum physics 
the it's like uh you can't determine whether you're a bad person or not because if you think oh i am a bad person well then you stop being a bad person because bad people don't know that they're a bad person interesting but then then you stop thinking you're a bad person because you know you're because you know you're a bad person and then you stop thinking you're a bad person because you know that you're a bad person which makes you a bad per- eligible to be a bad person again because you no longer think you are right so you just you it that does not make any sense and is not going to clear you of being a bad person i really like that but, and this is the thing that's so frustrating about this movie, is that it never seems to connect directly to any of these really interesting quantum mechanics problems and how they reflect human, like the human experience, right? This idea of superposition that you're describing of like, <laughs> you can't, like something changes when you observe it is not right. explored in this movie in any way. Yeah, yeah. You never talk about superposition. You never talk about um, electron, uh, what's it called? It's the uh, like electron pairing where like, or you can like uh, technically infer information um faster than the speed of light um which is unclear whether or not that works or not double split experiment is a perfect example lights light as a wave or a particle it's mentioned but not really like explored in a way that gives you a like thematic um like feeling this is something that we have to bring uh from our own experience with quantum mechanics which is not fair right i think that (laughs) Quantum mechanics is a very interesting field, one that is very hard to understand. And although it, you can do your own research about you know what what it is, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how the double split experiment worked and how electron clouds worked on my own time. But I don't feel like I am uh, properly versed in it in a way to really make some sort of a judgment. But if Nolan presented those inf- that information in a in the context of a movie, saying now focus on what this means to for our humans in this story and what these concepts could possibly connect to in their larger lives and maybe what even what it connects to in your life then i would have been very happy with this movie but that never happens he never presents you with a quantum mechanics problem that it connects to the um uh, to like the narrative of the story and i find that very frustrating because i think there's something there like you're just saying i i keep bringing in other stuff from my knowledge of the world and being like oh like maybe this is what it is but where is in the text? Why isn't it in the text? I agree that you've, I mean, I didn't think of it before, but you've made a very excellent point there. There's so much opportunity to bring that in. I wonder if Nolan maybe feared that the audience would see quantum uh, physics as, as too weighty of a subject. The only thing I can think of that was like really like get actually starting to get into it was like what light can't be a particle and a wave right but it is uh, you know it's like how does that happen and then after that it's like yeah but then he just really fades to it. nothing there's no there's no right. resolution to that even though there is a resolution in quantum mechanics right, right. they have a oh way of dis- they have a way of of reconciling that problem but it's not told to us in this movie it's just explained that there is this problem right and it's like because he is such a uh contradictory and conflicting character i feel like those things appear really well yes. like it, it, it not just in, in an implied way but in an explicit way yes 100 percent agree dang <laughs> i like, but maybe maybe there is something there that's the thing that's also frustrating is like i've seen this movie twice and i don't i don't see those little things there and that's you know and i think this is something that nolan does really really well right he understands physics to a and especially like you know, very advanced physics in a way that most other filmmakers don't appreciate. Just think about Interstellar. Interstellar is just such an incredible movie. And part of its um, amazing 
like stuff. Part of the reason why it's so amazing is because it takes these ideas that we know about in physics and applies them to human reality. This idea of time dilation has never felt more real than it is in Interstellar. But we know we've known about time dilation forever, but we've never experienced it until we watched Interstellar. The same thing is true here, or it could be true here. You know, we've known about quantum mechanics since you know the 1940s, since Oppenheimer brought it to the U.S., since he did all that research on it, and yet we've never really had to grapple with it in our real lives. We know that we use it. We know that like like our phones like actually use quant like quantum mechanic properties. That's how like a lot of technology that we use today uh, works is because we understand how quantum mechanics works or how the physics works at that level. And yet we don't experience it on this human level, right? We don't see it at this, like, as it connects to our wider experience. And I think that's a missed opportunity because I think that if you, I think that you can make those connections, even if those connections are not obvious or a hundred percent direct, right? Even though it's, it centers humans at the center of the universe. I think that's what you're supposed to do when you make art is you're supposed to relate it back to how individual people who are watching your movie like can interact with or relate to physical phenomena. And again, this is something that uh, Nolan does better than anyone. He takes um, concepts in film and in physics and makes and turns them into narrative structures that we can feel. And uh, this movie, I think, is missing that portion of it because it never makes the connection between what it what it's like to be a quantum particle and what it's like to be human. Yeah. Wow. Huge uh, missed opportunity. Big brain over here. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to go through some of these other contradictions because I think they're fun. One of the one of them is keeping Edward Teller at Los Alamos and telling him to continue the development of the hydrogen bomb, which after he makes the uh, atomic bombs, he uh, then tries really, really hard to scrap, which leads to Teller's betrayal. Um, right? He he uh, he's like Teller's upset. He's like, I want all I want to work on is this bigger bomb, right? Uh, let me work on the bigger bomb. And Oppenheimer's like, you can do it. You know, he's like, I don't even care that you're not helping the rest of the project. Like, I believe in in this as a theoretical, uh, you know. Um, possibility. And I want you to stay here and continue to work on it because this is where the best people are. And um, and then he stays. And then after the bomb is dropped, he's like, you know what? That was a mistake. We should not do that. And then it leads to Teller being jealous of his position and ultimately Teller going on to create the hydrogen bomb on his own without Oppenheimer's help. So it, it, it just like like, what did he want in this situation, right? Did he not imagine this situation occurring in the future? Um, the, there's also the attempt uh, to give the U.S. military the name of someone he thinks could be a spy in order to move their attention away from one of his students. And this ends up sending one of his friends into exile. It totally backfires. He's, he's completely out of, his, out of his depth, the same way that he was in the lab, right? In the experimental lab and in algebra. He goes in there thinking he's all like smart and clever, and then he immediately gets upstaged by Casey Affleck. He just comes right in there and is like, and just picks him to pieces. And um, it's just this, uh, you know, it's this huge mistake, this huge fumble by what we should, what is supposedly one of the most brilliant minds, you know, of his generation and maybe of all time. Then, then there's this tangle with Louis Strauss, right? He, um, uh, Oppenheimer goes, uh, like said, like, speaks publicly 
denouncing Strauss, telling everyone that Strauss is an idiot. Um, he, you know, he he kind of defies him at multiple uh, in multiple attempts, and Strauss sees this as such a threat that he attempts to destroy him. In Again, it's like, what, what are you doing here? Like, do you not understand the situation you're in? And then, of course, you know, building the atomic bomb and then having it used on two populated cities. Also a decision that felt good at the time, but then uh, he comes to regret. And, and I, I don't know exactly what to take from this. I, I, why is he like this? Why can he never say no? And why can he never let go? I feel like these are problems that other people don't have. Um, and I think most people don't have these kinds of problems because they see cause and effect play out. Like, for example, I'm not going to cheat on my wife with a non-committal communist because it will lead between between to strife between myself, my wife, and the communist. <laughs> Obviously, and the U.S. government. Yes, and the U.S. government. <laughs> Obviously, Oppenheimer believes he is exceptional, and maybe that is why he thinks he can have it both ways. He believe he seems to believe that it would be possible to build a bomb and that the bomb will be used for peace. It seems stupid to say out loud, but I think this is actually a feature of hu- of the human condition: the ability to deny reality and substitute your own. And you know, I'm saying that other people don't have these problems. I'm saying most people don't have these problems. Obviously, people cheat on their wives with communists and and all sorts of <laughs> things like this. But all of the situations that that uh, that Oppenheimer finds himself in, all these yeah, all these situations that Oppenheimer finds himself in are sort of uniquely designed by him you know he seems to be the architect of the environment that he has or the problems that he ends up having to grapple with if he was foresighted enough to see that you know doing this thing is going to lead to this outcome if he just listened to the people around him saying this is a bad idea you should not do this right consider what this will do to your moral soul it, it um it, he doesn't seem to take that seriously. He seems to think that he's going to be immune to those problems until those problems come knocking on his doorstep and he doesn't know how to deal with them. But then you know it, it leads to this um, conclusion that I don't really know what to do with. It, like if if Oppenheimer is denying reality, then how is he a good physicist? How is it possible that he <laughs> built a bomb? You know what I mean? The, the biggest bomb of all time. How is it possible he did this if he does not acknowledge reality? So I think this movie doesn't want to explicitly defend Oppenheimer, but in a way, this movie does in the same way it will to any protagonist, right? You follow a character for long enough, he becomes sympathetic. You know, Oppenheimer worms his way into, it, into your heart. You want him to get his due. You want to see him succeed. You don't trust anyone else, and although he presents himself as this breathless, overeducated freak, any slight feels unfair and unjust. Let's talk about Strauss for a second. On the second, on the second watch, it's clear that Strauss is the enemy the whole time. His conversation with that congressional aide, where he's eventually admitting to it, organizing a, a discrediting campaign against Oppenheimer, paints him as a spiteful and slimy politician. At no point is Strauss shown to be anything but self-serving. It's sort of weird to have a political drama with great characters and have such a clear villain. I just don't know if I buy this idea that the guy who built the atomic bomb is not as bad as the guy who revoked his security clearance, even if Strauss was advocating (laughs) for a bigger bomb. And I don't really know what to think about any of it, honestly. As a character study and as a sort of redemption for old Oppie, it's very confusing. But I think the the feeling of uncertainty and uncomfortable awareness is one that Oppenheimer was intimately familiar with. So, so much sat in his hands. He did what was asked of him, and it was terrible. But was it worth it? Like, he asked General Groves, remind me, who are we fighting against again? It, it, it's like this, it, it, uh, that's ultimately, I think, the, the accomplishment of this movie. 
and maybe that's the the way that I want it to feel about it at the end is like not have having this kind of um um not disassociation what am I thinking of dissonance dissonance in my head about what is Oppenheimer right he is this sort of enigma of like conflicting beliefs and also conflicting actions and although like he led he was successful in this very important project it was something that he ultimately ended up regretting and so it, it's really hard to put myself in this position of like being empathetic to him or even sympathetic to him but i can't appreciate that it's possible for someone to be this complicated i think Right. And I think the other thing is these are not necessarily, you know, narrative choices that Christopher Nolan is making because this is a real guy. So you have to work with what actually happened. Sure. And well, no, you, you don't. You have, That's not true. You don't have to work with what's actually happened. <laughs> That's, That's true. Yeah. That's true. But I think you can use that as an out. You can say, this guy was complicated. I can't tell you what to think. I can present you with what was like reality and say that, you know, he was this complicated. And to try to paint him in another light might not be the mission of the, the writer because you like, especially when you have something like the nuclear bomb asking a question should we have built the nuclear bomb is a really complicated question yes and like to, to try to pose that and say does the guy who was responsible for leading that project come out on the other side a good or bad person it might be an impossible question to to answer um and i do think that you can put something on screen for three hours that allows you to kind of ruminate in that uh without having the movie make an argument one way or the other explicitly Yes, and and I think that's that's like the beauty of film ultimately, right? Is that you can pose a really really complicated question that takes you three hours to to ask, you know, and then <laughs> takes you a much longer to answer. And yeah, I think that's like I think it's, that's that's like what's uh, what I like about the medium is being able to do something this complicated. And um, although it is sort of frustrating to come away with it and not really have an idea of like how anybody feels about it, right? Like I, I would feel a little bit better, I guess, if I had people that were like Oppenheimer, he did a great job. And then other people that were like Oppenheimer, he's a bad guy, you know, but it's not really clear how anybody feels about it. It feels like he was just a political pawn at the end where all these people were maneuvering around him or, or using him to get what they wanted without ever really seem to pass any sort of judgment about whether or not he did the right thing or what, right? And we never really hear from the public or from anyone that is sort of, you know, indifferent to Oppenheimer's uh, ultimate fate, right? About whether or not what he did was right. Um, everyone, ha everyone you meet in the story has skin in the game. They either helped build the bomb or were trying to advance their own political career. Well, I think with something like the atomic bomb, especially it's, do we build it? Like when you ask, like, should you have done it? Well, it's like, well, okay, first of all, if he didn't do it, they would have just gone to the, the next smartest guy who would have, and you got competing uh, countries who are also building it as well, where you're like, okay, well, just because I don't do it doesn't mean it's not going to well, exist. I, okay, that's what's sort of implied, though, is that they need him, right? When, uh, when Lawrence comes to him and is like, you need to cut out this union bullshit, right? You need to, because I have this project that I'm being tasked to, and they need you specifically to help work on this, right? And I think you're right that eventually somebody would have figured it out. But I, th but as but the movie implies that even the Russians wouldn't have gotten a nuke if they didn't get steel if, information if, from if Groves Groves says after they dropped the bomb, he says one of the wise one of the wisest decisions I ever made was appointing the director of the Manhattan Project. And I think that's the implication here is that 
only Oppenheimer could have done it in the time and efficiency and success with the success that they did, right? Other people would have had failed launches. Other people would have taken longer. Uh, Oppenheimer was the only one that did it, was able to do it in the way that he did it as successfully as he was able to do it. And I, I find that argument very compelling, actually. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's weird to give so much credit to a person. It's like saying a director is the only reason that the movie exists, right, you know, because right. it's like you have so many other people who have to work so hard and have to do essential things for it. Um, but I agree, the movie makes the argument that he is that important. And I think that is sort of true. What you just said, like, you know, if if Nolan was like, I don't want to make a movie about uh, Robert J, uh, you know. <laughs> J. Robert Oppenheimer, then it wouldn't have been made, right? Like, although they need all these other people to make it successful and make it good, um, ultimately it was up to one man's decision whether or not it was going to even occur, right? And that's true here, right? There were 6,000 people at, living at Los Alamos by the time it was over. Obviously, each of them played some sort of role in the creation of this bomb. And um, at a certain point, the ball was rolling and they wouldn't have stopped, right? But in order to get it all there, to get all the pieces together and to organize all these people and you know, inspire them to, do, to, to succeed, you need some sort of singular individual at the center of it to have it uh, you know, go af- according to plan. And I think that is uh, generally true about most things, is that um, sometimes it's possible for a single person to change the world. I saw... Um people make the claim, I was reading about Oppenheimer, that like people have made the claim that he's the most important person who's ever lived. Yes. Which is an incredible thing to say about anybody. Uh, <laughs> and it's also something that's insane. Like you were saying, people don't really... Like I think you were saying like in the movie, there's not people who are like, Robert Oppenheimer was a good guy versus other people being like, no, he's bad. In my own life, I don't really know anybody who has like a strong opinion on like the bombs being dropped on Japan or, you know, the invention of the atomic bomb. It's just something that happened 50 years before I was born. So it's just something that is the reality. Nukes exist. And there's not a lot of like should they or shouldn't they it's just that's the reality of the situation uh it's like asking somebody if we should be harnessing electricity to power the lights in our homes you know it's like it's that's already done and dusted and we don't really need to think about it because it it just is the reality of the situation so well only because i mean this is like a you're this is a uh non-cold war experiencer you know, yes. take. You know what I mean? The, uh, I mean, I wasn't alive during the Cold War either. But from what I understand, from what people talk about, like it's uh, they. I think like my parents and like my grandparents, um, they still have this fear of nuclear weapons that like never really went away. It's just sort of faded into the background. And I think it's this. It's one of these things that um, I think disturbs a lot of people in older generations. That like there was never an end to the Cold War, right? We never really figured out what to do with all these weapons. We just decided that we weren't going to use them right now, <laughs> you know, and that and that is not much of a comfort. And it's this sort of like underlying problem that like we don't really know what to do with. And I do think that people contend that we should get rid of the nukes or like we should do something. Um, we should address this problem. But it's one of those, you know. It's one of those pro- things where it's just easier and uh, more comfortable to not talk about it because if we don't talk about it, then maybe we won't, you know, maybe we won't ever get to that point. But like, you know, this is this is we've come dangerously close, right? You you know about uh, oh gosh, I wish I could remember his name. He's like 
I consider him probably the most important person in history. Um, the guy Stanislav uh, Petrov. Uh, he was a um, uh, uh, he was a guy. Okay, I'm trying to remember. What it's, he's a Soviet naval officer, and he was um, on a submarine, a nuclear submarine that had nukes on it, and he got a message from home office to launch a nuke at the United States. And he refused to do it. He said no. He defied his uh, office and uh, and like his position and told them not to do it. And ultimately, it turned out that that message was sent by mistake or something. That there was it was not actually intended. And he, by simply saying I'm not going to do this, ended up like <laughs> stopping wow. the uh, like the a apocalypse, apocalypse essentially. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because, like, imagine the situation, right? Imagine if he launches the nuke and then Russia's like, whoops, <laughs> we didn't mean to do that. <laughs> There's no way where the U.S. is like, um, yeah, well, okay, yeah, okay. Your mistake, you know. You get a we'll, mulligan. One, one yeah. mulligan each, you know, <laughs> we, we're good here. No way. It's my impression that um, there's a lot of people at the top of government who are just waiting, just just on the tip of their, like sitting on the edge of their seat, waiting for the moment when they can use all of these weapons that got hidden throughout the United States. You know, they're waiting, they're just waiting for an excuse to launch a nuke because we have all these things, they're sitting there, you know, they're burning a hole in our pocket and, uh, you know, what are we going to do with them? You know, we have all, we, we, we kind of want to see what happens actually. Like, what is, you know, let's just go, let's just let's do it. You know, let's, uh, let's, let's go into the next stage, you know, let's, let's make some, let's make some mess. Um, I feel like there's there's you know several, if not a lot, of people high up in our government that are just waiting for the opportunity to um, you know cause mass destruction, and uh, th- th- having these things sitting there waiting for them to to be used is um, only creating the opportunity uh, for something bad to happen. Well, especially with the conflict in Ukraine, that I think renewed a little bit of the fear of uh, you know right, atomic is, conflict. Right, right, which is the reason why we are fighting a proxy war and why we've been fighting proxy wars against um, Russia for decades at this point. Right, Afghanistan, Syria, a lot of um, uh, the conflict in the Middle East that we perpetuated was largely a proxy war between us and Russia. They were funding one side, and we were funding the other. And it, and the same thing is true here. I mean, although Ukraine is directly fighting Russia, the reason why we haven't put any sort of like military on the ground officially is because we're afraid they're going to nuke us. Um, and uh, yeah, rightfully so. I mean, what do they have to lose, honestly? Right. But, but going back to what I was saying is like, even because I've talked to my like, I've had those like talks with my dad. I was like, Dad, what was it like in the Cold War? You yeah. know, and like, there's definitely like those memories of like, or even just continuing anxiety about nuclear warfare. But I haven't had anybody in my life be like Oppenheimer, you know, like, <laughs> or, or be like, yeah, like thumbs up. Like I'm a, I stand Oppenheimer, you know, uh, scientific king. I the the he's just completely. He was probably one line in my history textbook that preceded the picture of an atomic bomb going off in Japan. You know, right. it's like Oppenheimer led the Manhattan Project, which you know, invented the atomic bomb. And it was like this movie also kind of um, uh, explicitly states, it's uh, Truman's. 
uh, action to to uh, to do atomic bombs, not necessarily the scientists who are necessary for uh, you know inventing it. You know that's uh, uh, it's it's he it's Truman who uh, pulled the trigger, you know, and set off the atomic bomb. So uh, it's, it's it's funny you say that because uh, it's not not really even not he the the way that the bombs were like or why the decision was made was Truman was presented with a range of dates in a range of cities. And then he was like, yeah, sounds good, actually. And then he didn't know when they were going to be dropped. And he didn't even know which cities they were going to be dropped on. And he didn't, I mean, obviously he knew about the Trinity test, but I don't think, um, I don't think presidents uh, specifically have the uh, brain capacity to uh, <laughs> understand what it, what a nuclear holocaust looks like. Um, but No, totally. And what I'm getting at here is that a movie that comes at it talks about this historical figure who is massively important. Um, I don't have any preconceived notions about who this guy is going into this movie. He is the guy who said, uh, I am become death, uh, you know, uh, destroy of worlds. Some people are killers. Some people are dyers. That's what he said. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Jack Gladney, but he's so I, I, so when they don't necessarily present me with it, like one way or the other, I don't necessarily have any, other opinions of that like I, I would need to watch american Pro- or read american prometheus to um to really get into the details of whether or not this guy was good or bad because uh, coming out of this movie i'm like okay well he's complicated <laughs> i think that's the right choice and i and that's how i felt you know going into this too it's like it's like um uh, i don't know i don't know if we should have made the the atomic weapon or not right i don't think we should have dropped it but I don't think that we should have. I don't know if we should have made it. Like this is a, this is a, um, is it's a really hard uh, conversation to have, and it like it made sense at the time given the political reality of the world where Nazi Germany was trying to take over the world, and so were the other Axis powers, right? But as the the as the Manhattan Project outlived Nazi Germany, it became um, less and less clear about what the what the viability of this thing was going to be. Right or how how useful it would be. So it was a uh, it was a tough like it is a tough decision and it's tough to know where Oppenheimer should have fallen on this. And it's interesting to see him be like this conflicted character through his be portrayed as a conflicted character throughout his whole life. Right? Anybody, even someone with very strong convictions, right, who ended up building the atomic bomb would be in a position of like uh, great moral strife. Right about whether or not they should have done it. But to have someone who has been conflicted his entire life build something that is also conflicted feels like <laughs> it feels like we're doubling down on the conflictedness. You know, it feels like we are um we're having the blind lead the blind or or more specifically the conflicted lead the conflicted. You know, it's like a <laughs> it's this like recurrence or or maybe like this ultimate um moral gray area built by someone who is in the ultimate moral gray you know we we found the perfect guy to do this a man with no convictions (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true i I think it would be somewhat more compelling if we had portrayed him as this guy who's very certain about his beliefs going through everything but this is the one thing that cannot register on his moral like uh uh, right He, he can't figure it out that would be easier for me to understand i think than what we have in this movie 
I'm reminded of like the neutral planet from Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's kind of where Oppenheimer lands. He's yeah. uh, it's like, oh, it's a beige alert. We're <laughs> dropping the bomb. Beige alert. <laughs> <laughs> I have no strong feelings about this one way or the other. Exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, well, before we move on to our cool Easter eggs, um, I just had um, one, well, a couple things. First of all, because of Oppenheimer, I'm now following Albert Einstein on Instagram. What does that mean exactly? I'm following the official Albert Einstein Instagram account. That doesn't mean, <laughs> like, that does not make, that does not clear up that statement. <laughs> it's like apparently run by his foundation or like his estate. Okay. Um, it, but like they post pictures and they're like, it's Friday. And it's like Albert Einstein, like with his tongue out. And, wow, which that's fun. I was disappointed that he didn't do in the movie. I was hoping that like <laughs> <laughs> he would do that. <laughs> Selfie. <laughs> he like sticks his tongue out. I thought, yeah, like when he walked past Robert Downey Jr., he's like, bah! <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought that was funny. Also, the phrasing of Oppenheimer being like, we have one hope of catching up with the Nazis. Anti-Semitism. <laughs> yeah, which again you see you see Groves' <laughs> face be like, what is he what is he getting at here exactly? <laughs> yeah, and I can definitely see like the audi- like certain audiences being like based opinion. I agree with him before he clarifies. Uh, and then um, the last thing I have for you: what does the J stand for in J. Robert Oppenheimer? No, I don't know. Let me look it up. Actually, I, I I'm, yeah, I think it doesn't have a explanation. Julius. Julius? According oh, to Wikipedia, it's Julius. Jangus. Okay. Well, then never mind. That's not as interesting. What were you thinking? It was just so nothing. I, yeah, well, I, 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 maybe it was a joke, uh, but yeah, I, it, was a, it was a joke. Somebody tongue tied. Somebody um, said it, nobody knows. <laughs> his, his, yeah, his professor when he, yeah, he, professor introduces him to Niels Bohr. He says, um, uh, "What's it?" Uh, he says, "Oh, like, what does the J stand for?" And then Oppenheimer, you know, because this is a, this is the beginning of a Nolan movie. Everything is like really fast paced. So yes. Oppenheimer doesn't, it doesn't answer immediately with some sort of quip. So they immediately uh, substitute with their own quip, which is apparently nothing. Um, <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's the way I understood that. The, I, the, the dialogue in this movie is so weird. When he goes, remember when he meets Heisenberg and he goes up to him and he's like, the first thing he says to him is, uh, I have to go back to America. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you telling this guy? He's not, it's not an airport. <laughs> oh man it made sense and like uh, late like uh, the second time i watched it it made more sense but when i first watched it i was like why is he even in this room if he's like i need to go back to america anyway whatever. one day i'll rewatch this film with subtitles and then i'll understand what anybody yeah, was talking about okay well that's gonna uh end our overall section and now let's move on to our cool easter eggs joey what you got so this story of him poisoning his professor is true According to Oppenheimer's friend Francis Ferguson, Oppenheimer once confessed to leaving an apple doused with noxious chemicals on his professor's desk, after which Oppenheimer's parents convinced the university authorities uh, not to press criminal charges or expel him, but Oppenheimer was placed on probation and had to have regular sessions with a psychiatrist in Harley Street, London. Um, So, yeah, this is... you, You may think this was made up for the movie. No, this is like a real thing that happened that he once confessed to. Strange. Going to therapy, not very Sigma male. That's true. Going to therapy is not Sigma male. Um, <laughs> while he was at the University of, of Leiden in the um, Netherlands, 
where he he impressed he was imp- impressed his colleagues by giving lectures in Dutch despite having very little experience with the language. This is uh, the location he was given the nickname Oppie. Um, so this was actually a true nickname. I thought it was funny when they were calling him Oppie. I'm like, did they really do that? And apparently it is true. Although I did see this great tweet where they said every time someone says Oppie and it was a picture of a rabbit wearing the Oppenheimer hat with like a flyer in the background. Um, you know, Oppie, Oppie the, <laughs> Oppie the rabbit. <laughs> uh, I thought Oppie was the alternate title for Barbenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Oppie, yeah, yeah, Barbie, Oppie, perfect. I think it would be Oppie, but Oppie. Uh, <laughs> um, I um, become Death Barbie. Um, yes, I am definitely. I don't want to get distracted by Barbie, but that's that's <laughs> definitely something in the uh, in the air when you're at the theater when you're uh, going to see Oppenheimer. But um, okay, next Easter egg. So the woman getting her face blown off when Oppenheimer imagines the destruction he's brought into the world uh, is played by Christopher Nolan's eldest daughter, Flora. Said Nolan, truthfully, I try not to analyze my own intentions, but the point is that you create the ultimate destructive power. It will also destroy those who are near and dear to you. So I suppose this is my way of expressing that in what, to me, were the strongest possible terms. Wow. I like that a lot, actually. This concept is called uh, Foucault's b- uh, boomerang. Um, the, I, I think we've talked about this before on one of, the other, one of our many other episodes. The idea that <laughs> when you create a technology... Uh, to destroy other people it will eventually be used against you um so yeah and also just like that was one of the more uh, searing images uh that we saw in this film i thought it was really well done i thought so and too when, when the background starts to vibrate like the uh, yes. experiments that he was imagining in his head and then that simple visual effect of having the um audience um disappear from the stands right as if they never existed and the um when he says something, and then all you hear is them standing up, not them cheering or clapping. Uh, that was spooky. Uh, r- really, um, uh, yeah, that's a really powerful moment. And uh, all right, back to Florence Pugh's nudity. In some countries in Asia, including those in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, Universal distributed a version of the film with the nudity of Florence Pugh as Jean Tatlock covered by a computer-generated black dress. That's awesome. <laughs> too, too hot to handle for those regions of the world. That's amazing. <laughs> um, okay. So, famous quote, right? Um, I am become death destroyer of worlds. Um, this actually has a deeper... Like, it, was, it was a very deep meaning to Oppenheimer, the, the real guy. He apparently was very, very interested in the Hindu religion, uh, learned, taught himself how to, how to read Sanskrit. He, he read a bunch of their religious texts, including the Bhagavad Gita, um, and he found this very, very uh, moving. In fact, he said, uh, once remarked, I have read the Greeks, I find the Hindus deeper. Um, so his, like, he had this uh, interest in uh, mysticism and especially Hinduism, sort of as an academic, he didn't really seem to practice any sort of religion. He also shared this interest with Niels Bohr, something that they, I guess, bonded over. Um, uh, so, according to Jeremy Bernstein, who is a physicist and science writer, um, he once asked uh, Oppenheimer's brother Frank uh, what he, uh, uh, what Oppenheimer's first words after the explosion were, and according to Jeremy. Uh, according to Frank, uh, Oppenheimer's uh, first words were, I guess it worked, <laughs> which is pretty great, actually. 
That actually sounds like someone made it up to make it sound like it happened in a Marvel um, movie. I tried to find this where where it was. There's this really long like series of interviews with Jeremy Bernstein where he talks about meeting Oppenheimer and actually being present at the Trinity test. And it's very interesting. But I never found the actual like line where he's we claimed to make this uh, this uh, associate with the Frank. So who knows? But later, after this, uh, after the explosion, Oppenheimer was asked you know, what he thought about it. And he said that he recalled after witnessing the explosion, he thought of a verse from the, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is, uh, in the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst, uh, if the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. And then later in 1965, um, he recalled another passage that came to mind. And this is the one that most people remember, uh, which is, you know, Obviously, he came up with this later. Uh, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu was trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Um, okay. This is probably the most bizarre Easter egg I think I've ever found in any movie, but it turns out to be true. Christopher Nolan's brother, Matthew Nolan, uh, was once indicted on murder charges and uh, in Costa Rica and allegedly used the code name McCall Oppenheimer as his like um, uh, like a, as like a secret identity essentially. Um, the 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 rumor or like the you know whatever the stated story that's like very popular is that he was a hitman not clear if he was hired to do this or if he had some sort of um personal vendetta against this um person but he never was convicted on any other murder charges um so it it was kind of a one-off thing but in the course of the investigation they found records of him referring to himself as mm mccall oppenheimer which apparently was a reference to um, the Oppenheimers in New York, who owned a prominent diamond business, not the creator of the atomic bomb, but still a pretty strange coincidence altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> There's a bunch of famous physicists in this movie, or, or you know, not really, but they're you know portrayed in this movie. One of my favorites is Enrico Fermi, um, who has some of the uh, most crazy things named after him. Um, he actually, uh, Fermi is like very, very famous for uh, advancing physics. He was a, he was a really, really famous uh, yeah, physicist, very, very successful. Um, he went on to uh, directly influence or tutor no fewer than eight uh, people that won Nobel Prizes later in life. Um, Yes, crazy. Uh, there's, uh, he, if you look at his known for on Wikipedia, um, he is known for the Fermian, which is one of only 18 um, uh, atomic elements that are named after people. Um, oh, wow. Fermi gas, Fermi Derrick statistics, Fermi's golden rule, Fermi paradox, Fermi method, Thomas Fermi model, Thomas Fermi screening, Fermi theory of beta decay, and so on and so forth. Um, what's what I love, I love about his Wikipedia is when they're talking about the Trinity test, they say he used his Fermi method to determine the safe blast radius. It's like, 
oh yeah of course he did <laughs> everything he does is the fermi method just hilarious that <laughs> they they designated that that he used his own method to do it i just imagine him going around being like and this is the fermi calculation this is the fermi calculator you know anyway it's just hilarious um this is the fermi desk this is the exactly. fermi breakfast special <laughs> exactly because he's eating it at that moment anyway um uh, one of my favorite Fermi named things is the Fermi paradox, which uh, is the idea that um, we can't find any life in the universe, even though there are tons and tons of planets and tons and tons of stars out there that possibly could sustain life. And yet we have found no evidence that life is existent on the universe. And uh, so it's uh, other than the, in the, um, you know, in, on earth. So it's uh, this problem that has many solutions, one of them being the great filter um, hypothesis, meaning that there is, exists some point in that you reach when you get to intelligent, when you're dealing with intelligent life, where they will have to either destroy themselves or find a way to resolve a problem. Um, so uh, nu- a nuclear holocaust certainly qualifies as a method of destruction um, and a solution to the Fermi paradox. Speaking of uh, Nobel Prize winners, Oppenheimer was nominated for the Nobel Prize in physics three times in 1946, 1951, and 1967, and he never won once. And finally, um, I wanted to mention that this movie was very successful at the box office. This was uh, the best Nolan film, the best opening weekend for a Nolan film, uh, or at least a Nolan original film, being the highest of his filmography outside of the uh, two latter films in the Dark Knight trilogy, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Um, so uh, this is you know going great, and apparently this is very a very successful or unusually successful biopic. Usually biopics don't do this well either. So um, I think uh, the, this is going very well for them, uh, all things considered. Yeah, no, it's it's super impressive. I love that this movie is so popular right now. Me and, too. And like well, along with it coming out with Barbie, it, it feels like we're in kind of this moment where everybody is thinking about movies i know it just feels so rare i want to talk about that more when we talk about barbie uh but it's a um it's awesome actually i'm such i'm like i'm so happy this is like uh, as as a fan of movies i um i'm just really happy that everyone's like on the same page and everyone's like hey i like both of these movies and i went to go see them together and isn't this fun you know i i can't remember the last time uh, we were so everyone was so on the same page about literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in specifically talking about box office numbers, that is really impressive because he's had some other highly anticipated, great, yes. know, one-off original films. Um, and obviously, it's like tough to go up against a superhero sequel, especially with how good the Dark Knight trilogy was. But yeah. it does make me, you know, speculate that potentially uh, this we could have like some competition for those movies when uh, Oppenheimer 2 comes out Oppenheimer into the Jokerverse <laughs> so could be a re- something they bring to watch him for. back like he's it turns out like they have some sort of portal or multiverse or something and you bring you come back for Jack Joker 2 <laughs> along with all the other pro- problematic um, protagonists that's right <laughs> that's hilarious all right Joey I think you know what time it is. It's time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. We've talked a little bit about um, the bombs, uh, but this movie doesn't really focus on the dropping of the bombs or the toll that it took on Japan. And I think rightly so. This movie is complicated enough with its political 
uh, piece. I don't think it needs to focus on that portion of it because honestly, we all know about it and uh, it's horrifying enough just to imagine. Um, and honestly, you know, Oppenheimer never went to Japan. He never saw the bombs being dropped. He, if he was given the choice, it's unclear whether he would have even done it. So, you know, it, it's sort of disconnected from him. But the question of should we have dropped the bombs or not, um, it, or in, and if we should have, should we have dropped them on those two cities is a question for the ages, one that will probably be um, debated for the rest of time. But it is of my opinion, after um, doing my own research, uh, that uh, this, was a, this was a massive mistake. So there's this great video on YouTube by a YouTuber called Sean. Um, he, it's like two hours and 15 minutes long about the lead up to the droppings of the bombs and the decisions to drop the bombs. And it is very, very fascinating um, and goes into a lot of detail about the different communications between different countries and how they were making decisions and all this stuff. But essentially, the, the, there was two big like, uh, decisions that were uh, important to this. The first one was that um, Japan did not want to surrender. They were afraid that if they agreed to an unconditional sur surrender, that they would lose the emperor, and that would be devastating to the like standing of the of Japanese people, because the the emperor was seen as more than just a ruler; he was like partial deity. So the having him executed or put on trial or something would have been extremely damaging to the cultural. The, like the culture of Japan, at least that was the theory of the Japanese at the time. The other thing was um, that uh, we had these bombs, and we were afraid of Russia. Russia um, and Japan had negotiated a peace um, several years earlier, and now Russia had the upper hand and was looking to essentially uh, pay like Japan back for a surprise attack and, and war that they had started um, years prior. But doing this would, of course, violate their peace treaty. Um, but Stalin was interested in reclaiming some of the territory that Japan had taken and was interested in, you know, kind of putting one all over on them. So they agreed in secret to invade Japan and to, um, you know, take them out uh, a, as a Axis power. But they um, uh, you know, it, and, and then would be able to negotiate their own settlement um, with, uh, with Japan and decide what they wanted to do. Now, of course, our relationship with Russia was very tenuous at the time, right? We, uh, you know, the US, Britain, and Russia all agreed that the Nazis and the Axis powers were a danger to the rest of the world and that we should be fighting them together and not fighting each other. But it was unclear what would happen after the war and whether or not the Soviets would still agree with us about what we should be doing or how the world should be run. So we felt that giving Russia the opportunity to invade Japan would have been a dangerous thing to do because it would, see, it would give J the Soviets more power than we were willing to give them. So there were two options here on the, on the table for the US. Either we let Japan invade, or we let, sorry, let Russia invade Japan for on our behalf, right? and then therefore give them more political power, or we do something to keep them from having to do that, right? Do we do something to end the war before it happens, right? So that's where the bombs come in. It's like, okay, we will drop the bombs on Japan, 
and this will keep um you know this and this will in theory keep the relationship between japan and russia um you know uh peaceful but it will also end the war so that we don't have to deal with this problem anymore right but at the time it was unclear whether or not um you know japan would surrender um because they had this um you know they had this executive council that was making decisions about what they should do and they were terrified of this un, you know of this unconditional surrender and uh they were they were uh, they wanted to to sue for peace they wanted to try to figure out a way out of this where they could get out, you know do this and because they believed that russia was still their ally they um were they thought maybe we can petition russia to intercede on our behalf toward the the americans and british but of course they didn't know that russia was secretly planning to invade them and the reason they didn't know that is because we lied to the J- japanese the we had a meeting with russia and uh and all, this was the potsam uh declaration actually uh, they, they all met and at the end of that um meeting we all signed a letter saying japan uh we're coming for you you know we're you need to you need to shape up and uh you know agree to our terms or else and russia signed that which would have officially broken the peace contract that they had done with it and then you know ruined any sort of negotiations that japan hoped to do through russia but we struck stalin's name from that declaration and sent it to japan and we're like, yeah, we don't know how Russia feels. Actually, we think that we're, uh, we think they're still friends with you. And uh, Japan's like, great, you know, Russia. And then Russia's like, wait, what? Well, we, we, he signed that too. Why? We, we hold on a second. And then we're like, oh, uh, bureaucratic mistake. We'll just, uh, you know, we'll get that in there. Oh no, it's too late. Oh no, it's, oh, it's already there. We, there's the nothing white we can out do is about already it. dry. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. You know, I, I can't afford an extra to print it a second time. You know how printing uh, is back in the 1940s. So we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna go with this. It's close enough. Um, so this led to, you know, again, Japan feeling that they had an out through Russia, but that out did not exist right um the other problem with this the other the other kind of issue here right is that we had been bombing japan pretty aggressively uh for months we there was a firebomb of tokyo uh, using traditional bombs that killed i think like a hundred thousand people um and this was a this was a um, method known as moral bombing or strategic bombing the idea uh, is pretty simple to understand, right? You bomb a civilian uh, area in order to strike fear in the people of the country and make them um, lose their appetite for war, right? If you kill, the theory is if you kill enough civilians in a horrific enough way, then people will start, you know, will be more willing to negotiate because they're so afraid of what you might do next, right? The problem with this line of logic is that totalitarian and fascist regimes do not care about their citizens. If you don't kill them, then they will kill them, right? That's kind of what they do. So when these bombings happen in in Japan, when they bomb Tokyo, this does not move the needle any closer to peace, right? It doesn't move the people of Japan toward a more, you know, to being more sympathetic toward uh, surrender. And it, does, it certainly doesn't remove, move the executive council 
to be more um, willing to do this because they don't care. They don't care that their civilians are being killed. They, they actually did a study in, in Germany where they're trying to figure out if like moral bombing or strategic bombing made a difference after they firebombed Dresden and other cities in, uh, in Germany. And they found that all it did was make the c- civilians more depressed, but it did not make them want to surrender more. And it did not make them feel like they could overthrow their government, right? The government still wanted to fight the war and the civilians uh, couldn't do anything about it, right? Maybe at that point, they were already unhappy with how the war was going. Maybe they were unhappy with how the Nazis were running things. And um, that didn't seem to uh, matter either, right? That didn't motivate them to overthrow the government. So killing lots of them wasn't enough to move the needle either. But this was the justification, right? This is the justification for dropping the nuclear weapons was that if we make a big enough splash, this will cause a surrender, right? This will cause them to, this will cause the end to the war. But that's not what happened. After they dropped the bomb, a week passed and they just, and the, the Japanese executive council continued to meet and discuss about what they should do and whether or not they could sue for peace or, or what. Um, and then we dropped a second one and they still like were lollygagging around. They were like, ah, you know. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we shouldn't. Lots of people were being killed. Uh, you know, how is this different than before? Essentially, we were bombing a, a uh, country that um, had no hope of winning the war, who we could have starved out, actually, because they had almost no air support at all. And we had completely blockaded them um, using our navies. So they had no, they were isolated. They had nothing, right? And um, we could have like essentially started like started a siege. There was no, there was never a serious contention that we were going to send troops to invade Japan. This is brought up in the movie a couple of times where they say we're saving, you know, we're saving the GIs, right? We're saving people, we're saving American lives that would be sent over there to fight hand to hand, and that was never a possibility. We would never seriously considered that. Instead, the the serious consideration was sending soviet troops to do that work right so we were we dropped the bombs to save the soviets but not to save the soviets to intimidate the soviets to make to make it clear that we were the biggest you know uh dogs in the park and the war is over when i say it's over not when you say it's over um so it's this again it's this strange contradiction in you know you can make uh, assumptions about truman about whether or not he was doing this out of a basis of fear or, or whether he really was, um, you know, making some sort of, uh, uh, this was a move towards superpowerdom or, or what. But ultimately, the, this enemy had already, was largely already defeated. We had already bombed them several times without moving the needle in any sort of significant direction. And it wasn't until they knew that, that, uh, the, that Russia wasn't coming to their aid and instead was planning to invade them that they ever seemed to consider that this uh, situation needed to go a different way. And the bombs didn't make a lick of difference about uh, you know, uh, moving, like, uh, convincing anyone that the war should be ended any sooner. Wow. I've never heard that perspective. I, um, I guess my like when you because i saw this question was going to be asked so i was like what do i think oh my goodness what a difficult question should we have dropped the bombs i was really surprised to find out that we've only ever had two bombs that are used uh, atomic bombs used offensively uh and they were both in japan and despite 
thousands of nukes going off across the world, all the rest of them have been tests. So I don't think necessarily is the only way that could have happened. But whatever the reaction was to us doing it to Japan, it's held everybody else from you know, doing it again, including us. So in a world where everybody is you know, a, a button press away from uh, burning us all up, it is kind of, I guess, we've got a 50 or 70 year standard of not doing that. Yeah, I, that, that's a good point. And this was something that Sean brings up in this video and is also proposed by Lawrence in that meeting with the defense secretary, right? That like, why don't we just blow up nothing? Why don't we just say, hey, we're blowing up a big bomb. Pay attention to what happens to it. Um, and this, you know, this is coming for you next. You know, the next shot uh, is at your head, right? Um, and uh, they're like, nah. And, you know, Matt Damon's uh, character, Leslie Grove, says, we intend to demonstrate this in the most effective way possible, right? Meaning he's going to drop it on some sort of civilian housing. Um, we, or like a, on a city, right? Which is the only target big enough for a bomb this, like, of this size. There's, a mil- there's no military target that would, that would be big enough for this to matter. And I think this, I think this argument is compelling, right? Uh, obviously, we can't know for sure, right? But if, if we were to drop a bomb and be like, hey, everyone, pay attention. Look, look, at this thing we've, look at this thing we've got. And you don't know how many more of these we've got and you know, how long it's going to take us to, to run out. Uh, so you better, you know, better watch it. It's uh, based on how little it mattered how many people died to, uh, to the decision makers in Japan, right? Um, it, it seems like this would have been just as effective, right? If it, had also, if it had come down to a vote, maybe I would be convinced that this, would, uh, this, there's a, you know, this was the right way to do it, right? But the fact that this was made by you know, some sort of um, you know, elite oligarchy Right, that ultimately was never touched by the effects of this uh, beyond the fact that they couldn't visit these cities anymore. Um, it seems like you could just drop it anywhere and uh, and have it uh, have the same effect, right? And be like, well, we're never going to use this. On, we've never used this on people, at least, right? Like we've always had it, and we've shown the destructive power of it. But you can imagine what it will do, right? I mean, why not? Why not build a a little town or you know a small you know, fake city made up of cardboard cutouts and get all those cardboard cutouts that we we printed for COVID, stick them in a city and then blow them up with a nuclear device and be like, look what happens, you know? So it's a, uh, uh, I feel like that's a, um, that is an alternative that should have been considered more seriously is, is what I think. That's fair enough. It's a really difficult question to answer. And you know, it, I think a lot of people rest on this idea that it's like nobody else should have nukes, but we should. <laughs> it's like we, I would rather be in the country that has the option and nobody else should. You know, I'd rather be on the country I don't know, with the like, bigger bombs. The, um, you know, most, uh, uh, most gun deaths are suicides. You know, having a gun. In oh, the I'm not house saying it's reasonable or logical, but I feel less, like it makes you more likely anyways. to be killed by a gun, right? <laughs> right. Being in the country that has the nukes doesn't necessarily mean the nukes aren't going to be used on you. (laughs) Fair point. Okay. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of our discussion on Oppenheimer. And as we do at the end of every episode of Apple Chat, we'll now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to Oppenheimer? 
I give this movie a big cannonball into the neighborhood pool. But when you crash into the surface of the pool, all of the water splashes out and everyone has to go home because there's no more water in the pool. <laughs> nice. What an epic <laughs> cannonball. <laughs> all right. Um, the rating I want to give this film is a blank haunted thousand yard stare as i try to grasp the weight of humanity's decision to race into the nuclear age while i'm wearing a stylish hat and a cigarette dangles from my lip excellent very good i love i I can't wait to dress up as oppenheimer for halloween yes (laughs) i can't wait to dress up as oppenheimer for the rest of my life uh all right well there you have it oppenheimer uh we've done and dusted and, and not a moment too soon huh we <laughs> <laughs> raced through this episode sure did. at least it's not three uh, hours yes yeah shorter than the film uh well what is next on apple chat Joey? next we are taking on the second half of this epic movie moment we're taking we're going to see barbie Yep. And at the recording of this episode, I have not seen Barbie yet, and I am dodging spoilers left and right. People are coming out with their strong takes on it, and I've been just keeping it locked down, just trying to go in there with my own opinions, and you'll be able to hear those opinions on the next episode when we release that. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Afplechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social media accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at AffableChat, and even our email address, AffableChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, I have become considered listener to AffableChat. <laughs> amazing (laughs) and you know we haven't really pushed this super hard but if you're still listening to us right now then you are committed enough to go leave us a rating on apple podcasts or spotify uh in our quest to try to become rotten tomatoes certified that's right critics so um yeah so if you're still here please do that we would greatly appreciate it uh but that's gonna do it for this episode for apple chat i'm benjamin and i'm joey thanks for listening 